Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And this week, we're really excited to share a conversation with someone we are huge fans of, Ryan Holiday. We had Ryan on a very early episode of the podcast. Our audience was a little smaller then, so you may have missed it, but he's got a new book coming out and it gave us a really good excuse to ask Ryan back on. Ryan is a best-selling author of over 10 books. And in particular, he has a trilogy of books starting with The Obstacles of the Way, then Ego is the Enemy, and now this latest one, Stillness is the Key, that have made a massive impact on all of us here at Altus. We are unabashedly Ryan Holiday fanboys. His books are the only ones that I will make a point of going back and rereading at least once a year. And I know Cameron's the same. If you see his copies of the book, he's got color-coded sticky notes and highlights littered throughout. So not only are we reading and rereading, but they have also elicited a lot of thought and reflection and ultimately action and influencing how we do things as coaches and more broadly as an organization. And within the landscape of high-performance sport, I know that we're not the only ones. There have been a lot of players and coaches in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball that have all come out publicly with very similar praise. And if you've ever taken us up on our previous recommendations to check out his books, you'll certainly know why. But if you're unfamiliar with Ryan's work, you'll understand soon why people like Rory McIlroy and and teams like the Seattle Seahawks have all credited his books with helping them earn an edge over the competition. So I hope you'll enjoy the conversation with Ryan, and I really hope that you'll do yourself a favor in picking up his new book, Stillness is the Key. Of all of the books, it feels especially relevant to athletes as it's split up into three different parts, the mind, the spirit, and the body. And I know that if you listen to this podcast, if you're an athlete, I'm positive that it will resonate with you and be helpful to you on your own journey to better, as will this conversation. So enjoy episode number 49 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Ryan Holiday. Hey there, it's Cameron McCormick and Corey Lundberg. We're from Altus Performance, and in this episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast, we have our first repeat guest. That guest is Ryan Holiday, author of The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, and The Daily Stoic, all of which hold high spots on the Altus recommended reading list. Thanks for joining us, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, uh, I'm honored to be a repeat guest. So clearly, what we want to do in this conversation is dig in deep to many of the elements within your upcoming novel, and I've got your advanced copy. So thank you very much for sending out a long. Corey and I have both read it. Stillness is the key. I'm sure thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people are excited to get it in their hands and start reading it. But I think leaping off, I just want to understand what's the current state of affairs on the farm down in Austin. Uh, they're good. I was uh, got hay this morning for the cows and uh, we went on a long bike ride, my son and I. So it's sort of a, a place to disconnect from the busyness of the world. And, and the reason I like you know, spending most of my time out here in the country is that I can get up early and I can start and I can do my work. And so, you know, by the time most people are up or the day is beginning, you know, like sort of 10, 11, when things are in full swing, I've already done, I've already sort of won the day. If you want to use that expression, like I've, I've, I've journaled, I've spent time with my family, I've eaten healthy. And then most importantly, I've, I've done some writing And if I was, you know, if I could walk to a coffee shop, if I, you know, could have breakfast meetings, if, if, uh, you know, I was going out at night, um, all things that would be much more feasible if I lived in town, I'm just immune from or a little bit insulated from. What is the regular rise time? Is it like Jocko Willink, 4.30 in the morning? No, not not quite. And then, thank God, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, on a, on a normal morning, it's like 6 a.m. So by, you know, 7, 7.30, I'm, I'm like uh, hard at work. Are there particular things that you do in the first hour, hour and a half that get you ready to be in the right mindset, the, the right mental space to write and write well or work and work well? Yeah. So I don't have an alarm clock or anything because I have a three-year-old. So he sort of takes <laughs> care of that. Um, but but what I do is I, I wake up, my son wakes me up. And then so my wife can catch up on sleep. I take him out. So we either go on a long walk or we go on a bike ride or, you know, sometimes depending on the schedule, I might go for a run. But so like the first 30, 30 minutes to one hour of the day, I'm active, I'm outside. And my new thing is I don't touch my phone for that one hour. So uh, I don't touch my phone for the first one hour of the day. And so since I don't sleep, uh, I obviously don't use my phone when I'm sleeping either. I, I think a big 
easy win for people is like, don't charge your phone in the room that you sleep in. So that that means that by the that, that I'm having a minimum of, let's say, eight to nine hours of no phone time per day. And sometimes like I, like I haven't touched my phone this morning. So, you know, I've been up since since seven. So I'm, I'm like three hours in. I haven't touched my phone in, you know, 11 hours, let's say. And then when I get back from the walk or the run or the bike ride, what I do is I, I sit down with a journal. So I, I use three different journals and I, I sit down and I just spend some time uh, journaling. And then this morning I had a, an article I needed to edit. I wasn't doing any writing. Today's a little bit of an abnormal day. But then I, I, I went straight into that. Again, before I checked email, before I checked Twitter, before I was doing any of the sort of distracting or social things, I was getting in the right headspace and diving into like the important project that I have for the day. Mm -hmm. We'll dig deeper into diving into the right headspace for the audience of athletes that we have. But before we get there, wanted to pull on that uh, social media thread. I'm, I've double tapped yeah. on most of, uh, of all of your social media posts. And I'm curious, <laughs> is there well, actually thanks. a collaboration going on with Casey Neistat, who many of our listens, listeners would know who is, and they would certainly know who uh, Lance, Lance Armstrong is, or are these guys just literally your running buddies? Yeah. I mean, the, one of the really weird things about writing books is that, uh, look, the vast majority of the population does not read, but <laughs> almost I would say you have like a hundred percent penetration among like successful or interesting or ambitious people. So the books haven't, you know, the, the, if, if you really wanted to reach millions of people, you would make music or movies. But one of the really cool things about books is that you get to connect with interesting people. So, you know, I'm talking to you, Casey Neistat's become a, you know, a running buddy. Lance Armstrong lives in Austin, connected with him through the books. So I've gotten to know a, a lot of different athletes and sort of elite performers in different fields because of the books. You know, may, maybe there'd be a project with, with Casey at some point. I was kicking around doing a ghostwriting a book for Lance at some point. You never know where things go, but I, I'm just really, I'm more interested in like what I can learn from people who are really good at whatever it is they do. In Casey's case, it's like making cool videos. And, you know, in Lance's case, it was endurance sports. I'm just always interested in exposing myself to, to people who have done impressive things. And, and then I'm always thinking about what I can learn from them and then what I can take back to my own work. Yeah. Well, last time when you chatted with Cam, I think we did a really good job of digging into kind of how you, the framework around how you, you kind of take on writing your craft and, and even some good biographical information. And I think that today we really want to get into how all of your, your teachings and your writings relate specifically to sport. Sure. And so I'm curious just how, how things kicked off. Like I know that you've really professional sports, a lot of coaches, owners have really started to embrace the writings, probably starting with obstacles the way. And I'm curious kind of how that kicked off. I read a, in an article that you, based on the, the ego is the enemy that you spoke to the NFL owners meeting. And I, I cannot imagine that you could collect 32 bigger egos in one room than the NFL owners meeting. I'm just curious how that uh, came about and sure. you know how receptive they are to or why they would be receptive to that. Yeah, it was it was a strange audience, right? Because it's it's 30. So it's a minimum of 32 billionaires. Right. And then it, it's also all the GMs and all the head coaches and all their wives. So it, it was a surreal audience it, and, and sort of a coincidence as well, which I'll, I'll tell you about in a second. But but what what happened was I, I think there were sort of two people who are most responsible for the books making their way through sports. When, when I was writing them, I was primarily thinking, you know, I wanted to connect with people in business. I wanted to apply these sort of timeless bits of history and philosophy to, to people who are trying to lead companies or start companies, because that was more the world that I was in. So I got this surprise email. I was in London and I got a surprise email from a guy named Mike Lombardi. And he, he just said, hey, I've been in football for a long time. I, I really like your book. Uh, I heard about it on a podcast or something. And it's it's wonderful. And I was reading it on my phone and, and his signature said, you know, like one Patriots place, Foxborough, Massachusetts. And I was like, uh, what? That's crazy. And I Googled the address and it's like the Patriots Stadium. And I was like, wait, are you like Mike Lombardi, the former GM of the Browns? You work for the Patriots now? And he was like, yeah, I, I really like the book. And it's sort of exactly the kind of thing we talk about, you know, in the organization. And so I said, well, give me your uh, I was like, I'm going to send you a bunch of books. So I had the publisher send him a bunch of copies and he ended up giving a copy to 
that the Patriots won the Super Bowl that year, not because of the book, just they won the Super Maybe. Bowl that year. Could have been what, because of the what, book. What, well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll take being in in the in the soup in some way. I think but, we should give um, you a ring, mate. Right? <laughs> oh man, I would take one. But uh, the the really crazy thing was that they beat the Seahawks in uh, the Super Bowl that year. But it was in an in a in a draft workout a few months later that Mike actually gave a copy of the book to John Snyder, who's the GM of the Seahawks. So just the idea that two rivals at that level would sharing reading recommendations, I think is sort of a, a, one of the things I've fallen in love with about the sports world. Like the CEOs of, of rival tech companies don't do that. And, and so I thought that was really cool. And, and I think the other person that reached out very early that I know is instrumental in spreading the book was Andy McKay. And I think he was with the Rockies at the time. Uh, and then he went to the Mariners and, and he's been all over, but he, he recommended the book, uh, or he bought the book and he started passing it through baseball and and baseball is a quirky sport in that like all the teams for for some time now have had team psychologists and sort of mental skills coaches i think because baseball is such a cerebral game a sort of like golf and and the the the, the movements are so precise that the the i think the mental aspect can can uh have such an enormous impact on the game and so it sort of ended up making its way through team psychologists uh in different organizations and different teams and it's become this 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 whole totally unexpected part of the success of the books and and uh as a fan it's been awesome but then as an author it's obviously been awesome too yeah well and that sounds pretty much like our relationship with the books where we started with obstacle is the way and we've kind of made it required reading for a lot of our clients and and both of the books that have been out, Ego is the Enemy, has been, you know, passed along a lot of our clients and even in the golf world. And I know that Rory McElroy is kind of, uh, I guess, had some notoriety in that he used the book as well and mentioned it to people yeah. and, it, and further spread the popularity. And so with that said, we both have really eagerly anticipated the release of the, of the new book, Stillness is the Key. And that's what we want to let you spend a little bit of time talking about. And I guess first kind of two-part question to, to get into the book a little bit is one yeah. allow you to kind of define what stillness is. And then for the listener, kind of what traits or bad habits would I possess that would signal to me that, you know, it would be urgent that I, I need some stillness in my life. Well, stillness is a, is a complicated thing. I don't think it's just this one thing we can't, it, it's sort of like ego, right? Ego is a, is a thing that manifests itself in different ways. And ego tends to be sort of uniformly bad. Stillness, I think, manifests itself in in a, in a number of ways that are all uniformly good. Stillness is kind of what you feel in that flow state when you're in a zone. Stillness is what you feel when you've slowed things down and when you're when you're thinking really clearly. Stillness is what you feel when you're spending time with people or 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 family members that you love. Stillness is what you feel when you've eliminated distraction when you've when you've gotten rid of what's extraneous and inessential from your life stillness is this kind of thing i think we all can when you hear that word i think you you think back to moments where you've experienced stillness and so the kind of the exercise i walk people through is i go okay think of a think of a moment that you've been still sort of how wonderful was that moment how powerful was that moment what were you able to accomplish in that moment and and it's usually like a very positive things, right? And then I go now. Why is that so rare? If, if stillness is is something that both allows us to be happy on a personal level and then at a professional level facilitates elite performance, you would think that it would be something that we'd we'd have quite a bit of understanding and insight about, and it'd be something that we sort of actively practice or encourage. But it turns out that stillness is kind of just this thing that happens accidentally for most people. And I know that's kind of how it is for me. And and so I, the, the premise of the book is like, how do we take this thing that's wonderful and, and powerful but rare and make it more prevalent both personally and professionally? 
One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. It's interesting you mentioned the word practice because that's clearly what we do when we're working with athletes in, in golf and what other coaches do as they're working with their athletes in said sport. And there are many of the elements. In fact, all the elements of the book, I'm sure the listener out there is going to be wondering, okay, how do I put this into practice? And one that's coming to mind as you're describing this moment of stillness that didn't necessarily occur in my experience, but occurred, I guess, vicariously through someone else. And that was Michael Greller in the 2015 Masters in the final round, in fact. And I thought back to it when I read the passage on limiting inputs where you, I think, closed the passage with a question that Marcus Aurelius would ask himself of what's necessary now. And uh, in the 2015 Masters, Michael realized the magnitude, as Jordan did as well, of the stage of what they were trying to accomplish in that final round. And, and Michael sought some advice from me. And that advice was, man, there's going to be a lot going on. My head's going to be racing. I'm going to be feeling this, that, and, and an array of different emotions and sensations. How do I compartmentalize all of it? How do I reduce distractions? Sure. Shift thoughts and attention away from those distractions. And what I gave him was I gave him a question, a simple question to ask, which is, where are you and what's important right now? And moving into kind of that practical strategy piece, maybe some advice for our listeners that largely are golfers or are athletes in, in some way. Sure. Uh, what would you speak to as far as uh, practical tips to limit inputs? Well, it, it is really important. So I, I talk a lot about baseball in the book because I think baseball is a, a similar example to golf where the time between, you know, a pitcher, the ball leaving the pitcher's hand and it arriving in the strike zone is something like 400 milliseconds. So in an example like that, we go, oh, man, there is like even thoughts are costly in 400 milliseconds, right? You do not have time to waste thinking about anything other than the task immediately in front of you. And in fact, maybe such a small window that you can't be thinking at all. It has to be coming from a, a deeper, almost muscle memory place, right? Like an unthinking place. Mm -hmm. And so we, we can sort of nod our head along with that. You know, there's the famous Yogi Berra line. It's impossible to think and hit at the same time. And then we go back to whatever it is we're doing, you know, whether it's golf or being a parent or trying to write something or or just uh you know doing a big interview and we're we act as if we have room if we have the luxury of thinking about all these other things right like people are about to go up on stage and they're thinking what are people going to think about me uh, how does my shirt look you know they're they're obsessing about all these other things and all of that you could argue that that's a, a resource allocation error because instead of focusing that time and energy on, on the, the key task in front of you, you have decided to make a harder thing harder by thinking about all these other things. So I think the, the core of this is like, how do we constantly empty the mind? So if you've ever meditated, right, the, the idea is like you're going to have these thoughts, but you have the ability not to grasp onto the thoughts. You can kind of just let them go. We want to practice that. And I don't talk about meditation in the book, but this is something we can do actively in our lives. It's like you're talking with someone and then, you, you know, it's bothering you that they're tapping their hands. You can decide whether you're going to lock in on that or whether you're going to let it just sort of float on by. Right. You can decide whether you're going to be thinking about these. You have the ability to sort of empty the mind. And I think what really great athletes do, what really great creatives do, what really great investors do in these high pressure situations is constantly empty the mind, start fresh and push away the inessential for some consideration at a later time. You know, even in golf, I mean, I'm not a good golfer at all, but I, I, I've golfed enough to know that like one of the best ways to be bad at golf 
is to be thinking really hard about how good you want to be at golf, right? Like the harder you try to hit the ball, the more you are trying to make up for how you did earlier, the more I need this ball to go right here, right now. I'm really serious. These are all thoughts that somehow, and and maybe you guys know why, but somehow end up actually making it more likely that we're going to do the opposite of what we're trying to do. And so stillness is a way to prevent that from happening. And I think building on that, any sport like ours in golf that requires any kind of technical proficiency where you there's mechanics that are involved, it's really easy to have a lot of those technical thoughts as well, not only on kind of what's sure. happening in the competition. And one of the quotes, you know, you say that you're not much of a golfer, but one of the quotes in the book should be in like every golf academy in the world is a wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. And from a golf coach's perspective, that's kind of gold for us. So I want to want to kind of move on because you mentioned the high pressure situation. And you mentioned that stillness has a lot of different kind of versions that it can be. And in my mind, when I think of stillness originally before reading the book, I think of that kind of calm and, and cool headedness. And at the very beginning of the mm-hmm. book, you, you have the great story of, of JFK and the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the obvious high stress situation that that, that is. Let's say that you are not naturally blessed with this innate equanimity um, and sure. you have this coolness under pressure. What are some tactics that in the moment as you face whatever your version of a difficult situation is that you would recommend people or athletes to, to try to cultivate that skill a little bit? Sure. There's a, an interview I read with Chris Hadfield, the Canadian astronaut, a few years ago, and he was saying, he's like, astronauts are not better than other people. He said, we're just meticulously prepared. And he said, what we always focus on is what can we do in a situation that's going to make things better? And then he says, and we always remember there's no problem so bad you can't make it worse. And so I think one, one of the things that leaders and, and just ordinary people want that, that can help them sort of slow things down is go like, my job here is first and foremost, just not to dig this hole any deeper, right? I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to overreact. I'm not going to instinctively react. I'm not going to do what feels good. I'm not going to do what everyone's saying. I'm going to stop. And I'm, I'm just at the very least not going to make this worse. And that's really, really important. And so that's something I think about always. One, one of the, the things uh, they, they, I have young kids and, and they, they talk about pausing, right? Like your kid falls down. You don't rush in and go, oh, my God, are you OK? You're so hurt. You must be so scared. You just like pause, right? Or if they wake up in the middle of the night, you pause. And this pause is also a way to kind of slow things down. So I think an an easy way to, to be more like JFK is just not to react right away, to say like, I'm gonna stop and think about this. So as you mentioned the slowdown and kind of stopping to think about this, I. I guess there's been a lot of times that where you've cued a question that's kind of triggered any kind of that pause and reflection for a moment. And I read an article recently on anger that really, because there's, I don't know why, there's like a lot of anger (laughs) in golf. And as a reformed club breaker myself, it it especially piqued my interest a little bit, but I just gave this to, to a client yesterday that this this is an issue for them and the question was does anger make this better which i love i love just stopping to ask yourself that question and it's pretty easy to come up with the answer rarely is anger going to make this better but while it just made me think about that i'm wondering if there are any other if you can kind of elaborate if there's any other strategies that can kind of coping strategies that can help us deal with those to bring stillness in the face of of where anger would otherwise be well, so uh, I think two things that, that Kennedy did really well in the Cuban Missile Crisis was he said, let's think about why the Soviets did this. He's like, obviously, it's unacceptable. Obviously, we're not going to allow this to stand. And they should have known that we were not going to allow this to stand. But he said, let's stop and think about why. And then if we understand their intentions, perhaps we can come up with a response that will allow them, that will de-escalate rather than escalate the situation. And so what Kennedy ends up coming to, to realize is that, that the Russians were really desperate 
and that this was kind of like a gamble that they hoped would work. But it's not like they were super invested in it. So like they were testing the United States. And so what Kennedy realized is like, hey, they're testing us. So if we can stand strong and be patient, they're going to back up because they're, they're, they realize they stepped too far. But if we immediately react, if we uh, act aggressively, they're going to have to respond aggressively. And this thing's going to backfire on both of us. So that was the other famous thing that Kennedy said in the missile crisis. He said, look, you, my generals, you're telling me we have to bomb Cuba. We have to fire missiles at Russia. I understand why you're saying that. But tell me, like, what is Russia going to do after that? And it was clear that, like, the generals hadn't really thought about it. Right. Like all they knew was like somebody does this. We have to do that. What they weren't thinking about. And Kennedy goes like, what worries me is like steps six or seven when this is escal when this is pinged back and forth several times. And he goes, I'm really worried that you guys, if you're wrong, nobody's going to be around to hold you accountable because we're all going to be dead. Right. And so what you want to think about, it's like somebody sends you a, a frustrating email. And so when you reply, you give them that frustration back. What you haven't stopped to think about is like, how are they going to read your email? Right. And what's going to happen as this escalates? And now all of a sudden, three days from now, are you both going to be apologizing when the whole thing could have been avoided by you just letting it go in the first place? Right. And so you see people often plunge into these conflicts or get way wrapped up in these, you know, uh, needlessly complicated negotiations or, you know, whatever it is, because they, they haven't stopped to do what Kennedy did, which is think about why their opponent or why the person on the other side is behaving their, the way that they, they've behaved and how they're likely to receive whatever you are doing in response. And so that was, was a really key part of the missile crisis. And, and that was, I think, Kennedy's primary genius there. He said, you know, I want to use time as a tool not as a couch. So even though he didn't rush into action, it wasn't that he was just sitting around. It's that he he realized that giving them space to come to their senses was actually the smartest move he could make. And that's ultimately what happened. Yeah, there was a certain poise and, and presence that you described he demonstrated in that situation. And uh, maybe a related concept that I'd like to pull on a little bit is the concept that you speak to are right about in confidence. Is it something that we uh, speak sure. about so often when we're trying to build self-belief and uh, built on the proper solid foundation? And you, you made mention in the book that confidence arises from experience, from knowing strengths and weaknesses. And that related to your story of David and Goliath. Can you elaborate yeah. to the concept of confidence as it um, situates itself in stillness is the key and maybe uh, learning some lessons as you probably do? I would assume you do in speaking to the sports organizations and the athletes that you've spoken to recently. Yeah. So I, in my ego book, I, I obviously I wrote about how I thought ego is the enemy. And so I would get a lot of responses from people and they, they would go, I get what you're saying, but isn't a little bit of ego a good thing? Mm -hmm. And what I realized is that they were confusing confidence and ego. And these are fundamentally different things, right? Like Ego is the counterfeit knockoff of confidence, right? Or it's, it's undeserved, unwarranted confidence. And so what I wanted to do in this book is talk about the kind of stillness that comes when you really know yourself, when you know your strengths, when you know your weaknesses. Like the, the person who walks around, like Donald Trump is probably the least still person on the planet. And I think anyone who looks at his ego sees that there there is it's fundamentally driven by like a desire to be loved to get attention that it comes from a place of insecurity and i'm not even i don't think we need to get into a political discussion anyway i'm just talking at a personal level his need to be the center of attention that is not coming from a place of confidence right that's sure. coming from a place of insecurity and we all have a version of that in ourselves like I remember early on in my career, I, I, I was uh, working in Hollywood. I was working at this talent management agency. And, and I remember someone was talking about something in a meeting that I'd been sort of invited to as a very junior person. And I, I sort of like stepped in to like say something that because I knew a, a tiny bit about what they were talking about. And afterwards, one of my mentors sort of took me aside and he's like, did you need to say that or did you just 
want to be heard. You know what I mean? Like he was like, did you feel like in retrospect, did you did you feel like that that added anything to the discussion or was it that you just wanted to be recognized? And to me, that's always been a, a good line now in, in sort of confidence or insecurity is like, am I doing this because it needs to be done or because it moves the ball forward in some way? Or am I doing this because I want to be validated, because I want to get attention, because I want to be rewarded? And so the person who is who is acting out of out of insecurity is not very still. But then also the person who doesn't have any confidence. I talk a little bit about imposter syndrome, the person who's like, I'm a fraud. They're about to find me out. I'm going to be exposed. I, I don't deserve to be here. I'm not as good as these other people, which I'm sure you see in very talented golfers all the time. We all have those doubts. But imposter syndrome, weirdly, is very similar to ego in that it's like obsessed with the self. Like an egotistical person and a person with imposter syndrome are both convinced that everyone is thinking about them. Hmm. And the irony is actually everyone is thinking about themselves. Right. And so when we can have some confidence, we can go, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm not good at. Here's what I'm working on. Here are the strengths that I bring to the table. When we have that, we can slow things down. And and I, I, I've also come to believe this is something I've talked about with sports teams. It's like, look, just because you believe you can do something doesn't mean you can do it. At the same time, if you don't believe you can do something, doesn't mean you can do it. So what I want to think about as I go into a challenging situation is not like, oh, I got this. This is easy. I'm the best in the world. Of course, like I'm going to dominate. What I think about are like, what strengths am I bringing to the table that are going to be helpful here? So like when I wrote my first book, Obviously, I'd never written a book before. So the idea that I would be like, know that it was going to go well and that, of course, I could do it, that would be egotistical, right? So instead, I tried to go into it going, I'm a fast learner. I work hard. I don't quit. I ask for advice. You know, I've done my research. Uh, Like what I I tried to think about, not like, of course, I'm going to be able to do this, but like, of course, I've laid the groundwork that should put me in a position where I I can do this if I don't quit. Yeah, I understand. That was the solid foundation upon which your confidence was built and you knew that you were going to reach the end and achieve a level of satisfaction. But at the same time, I'm sure you had that mindset that, okay, this next version or the, uh, book three or book four, or now we're on book eight, I guess, that um, yeah. you're trying to uh, continually grow your skills and um, uh, master your domain, right? Yeah. And and I talk about Ulysses S. Grant in this chapter a lot. And uh, actually, I I talked to the Cleveland Browns uh, at their training camp earlier this year, and they had some version of a quote from Ulysses S. Grant about this on their wall. And I've always loved it. He basically says, like, at any point in a battle, like the two armies are throwing themselves at each other. And it's like they're both equally exhausted. But it's the it's the one who the next day wakes up and is ready to press their advantage that ends up winning, right? The one who has the confidence, the determination, the will to win that keeps going. And so you don't it's not that you walk into and you go, this is gonna be easy. Of course I've got this. You walk into it going like, I'm not gonna be the one that quits. You know, like I I'm not gonna be the one, I'm gonna be the one that's gonna keep going as long as I'm physically capable of doing that. And I think that's something that's much easier to be confident in rather than confident in a result that you actually really have no, like you have no ability to be confident. So like I, I've joked, I think I've written an article about this, but it's like, I don't believe in myself. I have evidence and that's where my confidence comes from. As I hear you say that, that's also just kind of choosing a more empowering perspective or the right kind of perspective too, which is a big theme from obstacles the way. Sure. And when we hand, when we hand that book out or when we say, Hey, listen, I need you to really look into this. I would say nine times out of 10, when I debrief with our client afterwards, it's that chapter on perspective that resonates the most with them. Because I don't know whether it's because in golf, you know, we're, we're kind of walking down the fairway by ourselves. We're in relative solitude and there, as you mentioned before, like there's so much time in between shots. It creates a lot of time to create all these different narratives and and very rarely um, are those narratives helpful. And so I I just, I'd be remiss because I know that it's been such an important part uh, for our clients in golf. I'd be remiss if I didn't allow you to kind of elaborate on, on a little bit of why that choosing the right narrative uh, and the right perspective is such a powerful tool in the hands of athletes. 
Well, so there's this really powerful passage in in Epictetus. He's this Stoic philosopher who was born into slavery. Eventually, he becomes this very well-known philosopher in in Rome and in Greece. And he says, like, every situation has two handles. And he said, one of the handles will bear weight and one of them will not. And and so he says, it's key that you decide which handle to pick something up by. (laughs) So, you know, do you pick up, you're in an argument with a family member. Do you pick up that, like, this person's out to get me, I hate them, and I'm like, blah, 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 or do you pick up, this is my brother, and I love him, and he obviously means well, and we're going to figure this out, right? Like, do you pick up the handle that, like, I think of New England in the, in the Super Bowl against the Falcons, it's like, do you go, hey, it's 28 to 3 in the fourth quarter, it's obviously impossible to come back by, we blew it, this game's over, let's just keep playing and not embarrass ourselves, Or do you pick up the handle that says 28 to 3 is just a number. Plenty of bigger deficits have been overcome in sports before. Let's just focus on this this play right in front of us. And if it goes well, then we'll stack another one on top of it and another one on top of it. And we'll see if we can't make this interesting. Right. And and so you deciding the perspective that you're going to bring to a situation is like the one. There's so much in life that's just totally outside of our control but we always control the story that we're going to tell ourselves about a situation or an event. And so really, I think that's what what I try to write about in my books. And I think that's what's such a powerful tool in stoicism is that it tells you like, look, that perspective's up to you. So use it wisely and try to choose a story that's going to help you move forward, right? If you tell yourself, this is unfair, I've been screwed over, I should quit, you know, I'm a piece of shit. It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell yourself like, hey, it is what it is. I'm going to keep going, uh, blah, blah, blah. Then that's also a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're not talking about the secret, you know, like if you magically wish it this way, <laughs> it becomes that way. But like if you tell yourself something, it's hopeless, it, that something is hopeless, it, it does become hopeless. So we're bailing on the, the uh, law of attraction then? <laughs> yes, uh, yes, yes. The, the Stoic, like the, the the first discipline of Stoicism is the discipline of perception, right? That's the discipline of sorry that that's what perspective is. But the second discipline, equally important, is the discipline of action, right? So, what actions are you going to take now that you have this perspective? And I think you know, obviously. It's not about getting lost in your own head. It's like, okay, I'm going to get my head right, and then I'm going to get back in the game. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. So I thought it interesting just a few minutes back when you were untying many of the emails that you received, the distinction between uh, separating ego and confidence. And I have a similar, I guess, untying process that I'd like you to take me through. Okay. In your chapter on Enough, you wrote that the need for progress can be the enemy of enjoying the process. Now, I'd imagine maybe incorrectly, this concept's a hard one to digest and act on for the developing athlete particularly because they'd be looking for some confirmation that their efforts in practice training and and competing is producing an ROI. And maybe even through a different lens, the rookie professional athlete is they've leveled up in terms of the kind of stakes they're playing for. So can you untie progress process and the principle of enough in like looking through those lenses? So I got to imagine that anyone listening to this or anyone that's sort of coming in your guys's orbit has this wonderful gift. I feel like I was given it. I don't know if I got it from my reading or from my parents or if it's genetic, but like what makes someone great at what they do, what puts them on a path to mastery is like that obsession with getting better, sure. right? You're never sat. You're never satisfied with where you are. You want to get better. And so you get better, right? And For a while, you're sort of evenly matched with everyone. You know, you got the other people who in high school are good and then maybe make to college and then maybe you go pro or whatever it is. You're evenly matched, but you have this sort of extra, this extra drive, this this extra intentionality about getting better. And this is what makes you great ultimately. And it's a gift. I would not not say that it's not a gift, but there is no, you know, rose without a thorn. And the thorn on that rose 
is that it makes it very hard for you to enjoy what you have. Right. Uh, I was fascinated in reading about Tiger Woods that, you know, his father referred to the idea of enough as the E word, that it was almost a curse word that there was ever such thing as like enough. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I think I can relate to that. Right. Because you set out and you're like, hey, I want to be I want to be a recruited college golfer and you make it. And then instead of being like, I did it. This is success. Immediately go. But That's now I want to go pro or now I want to make the tour. Yeah. And so so that what next is is what makes you better. Right. And it's what prevents you from resting on your laurels. It prevents ego from creeping in. So it's a positive in one sense. But in another sense, it makes it it hard for you to really ever be present because you are always saying what's next, even as you're, you know, even as you're winning. Like I, I, I was joking, like at first I wanted to be an author. And so having a book, that's what success was. And then before that book was even out, it was like, no, actually, success is a bestseller. And then before it, it before I even framed, you know, my appearance on the bestseller list, it was like I was trying to sell my next book, you know. And, and so that that drive has served me quite well. But you can also see why it causes people to overreach. Right. Uh, Machiavelli talks about how often we sort of grab defeat from the jaws of victory because we go past the mark that we aimed for, right? Or we expand out past our level of expertise. You know, businesses that scale too quickly, it's a great example. People who say more than they need to, people who accumulate and acquire more than they need to. So I, I think what I what I wanted people to leave with is understand that like you've got this thing and it's great. But if you don't also have the ability to dial it down sometimes, if you if if you are applying this to all facets of your life, right, again, to go to the Tiger Woods idea, it's like enough, not, being insatiable on the golf course, that, that's a safe place to do that, right? Being insatiable in your private personal life eventually leads to ruin in some form. So you, you have to figure out you, you can't apply your sort of champion mindset to say raising your children or, you know, uh, a friendly business conversation or, or you know, a, a, any other part of your life. And so it's, I think that if you want that stillness, you need to figure out how to get that in, in check. You mentioned the kind of the intentionality and the drive that's common in those high performers. And I think oftentimes it's also scaffolded by, you know, a lot of structure and a lot of routine, which is another theme of the book. And one of the quotes, high performers know that order is a prerequisite of excellence and that in an unpredictable world, good habits are a safe haven of certainty. And it's another one that should be up on the wall somewhere uh, that we really, really liked a lot. But, you know, you spoke a little bit about your morning routine earlier when we first uh, got on the call. Yeah. But to, to further persuade Anyone that's listening of the importance of that routine, can you just elaborate a bit on its significance and not only, you know, always trying to get better in personal development, but also how that relates to stillness? So William James, the psychologist, he was saying, he's like, nobody is more miserable than the person who's having to decide what they think and feel and are going to do in every moment, right? So one of the reasons we decide to have a routine, and you can see why successful people who theoretically could be able to do whatever they want are usually the strongest practitioners of routines, is because when you wake up suddenly and money is no object or your schedule is entirely your own or people are coming to you and saying, what do you want to do today? What can I do for you? That can spin you off into chaos and anarchy very, very quickly. And so you need to be rooted in structure and routine to keep moving forward and to keep yourself from kind of spinning off of the planet. I think it was Eisenhower. He said, um, you know, freedom is better expressed as the opportunity for self-discipline. And then Jocko Wilnick, uh, you know, said it probably better. He said discipline equals freedom. So it's not that freedom is freedom. Freedom is chaos. It's when you have freedom and then you decide, okay, here's where I'm channeling it and directing it. Here are the constraints I'm putting up around myself that allow me to move forward. You you think about like a gun, right? A gun is a focused explosion. That's what makes it so powerful and and so lethal, right? And so if, if, if you're just 
dissipating your energy all over the place, you're not going to be your best self. If you've concentrated and you're saying, it, no, I'm focused on this two hours here in the gym, and then this is what I have for breakfast, and then this is what I wear you know, in the afternoons, and then this is what time I go to bed, there's just less chaos. You make fewer mistakes. You waste less energy. You're just, you're just ordered and ultimately still. And, and so that's why I have a routine. I could I could do whatever I want, like a lot of writers, that's one of the benefits of the profession, but it's like, no, I have to wake up at a certain time and start writing because ultimately, as much as we like whatever it is we're doing, whether it's golfing or, you know, uh, practicing free throws or being, you know, the ability to, to play professional football or golf or, you know, to be the CEO of a company, obviously, you're, you deeply love that thing. The other side of it is that there's often a lot of unpleasantness in it, right? Like it's hard, right? Sitting in front of the computer is not as fun as sitting in front of the television, right? And so as a writer, one of the reasons I need to have this structure is that I can very easily come up with excuses for not doing the work that I need to do. And I imagine you see that with golfers as well, particularly after they win, their desire to practice can lessen unless they are just sort of pulled along by a routine and a structure. There are many, well, I guess, pitfalls that players recreationally or competitively at any level would fall into, and uh, I guess that would push them to uh, towards being distracted, toggling between activities, and possibly excuse-making. But yeah, at, at the same time, I guess the mirror moment, looking in the mirror and asking themselves the question, am I willing and able to demonstrate this purpose to be the best version of myself is that kind of overriding question that uh, hopefully causes them to answer to themselves and uh, gets yep. them back on that track of ritual and routine towards uh, getting where they want to get to. One thing I would say too is like, as you become more successful in what you're doing, now all of a sudden like, okay, so early on in your career, it's like, okay, I could practice or I could play video games, right? And so it's it's pretty easy what the right decision is there, right? Well, now what if you've won a championship or in my case, like you've, you've, you've written some best-selling books? Well, now it's not choosing between like writing or, you know, working on your swing and playing video games or, you know, going to a nightclub. It's, okay, I could sit here and write or I could go do this speaking gig. Or I could go do, you know, I could, uh, you know, do these, this media interview, or I could tweet to all my followers. These are, or, or as a golfer, maybe it's like I could appear in this television commercial, mm -hmm. or I could go, you know, do this, you know, this paid appearance over here. You know, you can do all these things that feel like work, and often they're quite lucrative, but ultimately they come at the expense of the main thing, the craft, the profession. And so part of what having that routine allows you to do, part of why confidence is so important, part of why, you know, knowing like what your limits are is so important is that it, it allows you not to get sucked in or pulled off the path by these lucrative, attractive opportunities that are really Trojan horses for distraction and taking your eye off the ball and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, having that great filter, I guess, is a good way to say it. And you've walked right into the next question, which is saying yes to something is saying no to something else. And you write a passage in, totally. the, chapter in the book of saying no and having slack in the system. How are you yourself prioritizing where, I guess, to place time as the resource to produce the greatest value? So for me, I have to remind myself over and over again that the, the whole point of this was to be a writer that I want to write. So, so I've had lots of opportunities to do a, a podcast and I probably left some money on the table and also some cool experiences on the table by not doing it. Well, thanks but for doing it. <laughs> no, no. It, and I, it's what I, what I came down and realized is like running my own show would be stressful. It would take away writing time. If I have something to say, I, I can just accept opportunities to be on other people's podcasts. But it's like success for being a writer should not be that I don't have time to write because I've taken on these other opportunities. And so I spoke to the Rams this year, and, yeah. and that's actually one of their slogans. It's keep the main thing the main thing. So it's like, what are you going to say no to this year so you can say yes to the thing that matters? And and it's a, a lot of those things that you're saying no to 
aren't going to be easy no's, right? It's going to feel like, oh, maybe I should have gone. I imagine with golfers, it's like deciding what tournaments they're going to enter, right? Because it's not like uh, the schedule is just set and you you know, you know do 81 games or 82 games or 16 games. It's like you got, you're more like a writer where you're kind of choosing which contests you're going to go in. And so if you don't choose enough of them because you're busy you know, chasing dollars over here, that's a problem. If you don't have the discipline to say, hey, I'm recovering from an injury, I can't make this tournament and you push, you know, you, you push back too early, that could also be really damaging. So you, you have to have the ability to say no. You have to really ask yourself, like, is this essential? Does this matter? Does this move the ball forward? Does this get me closer to the life that I want to have? And and oftentimes I find you end up having to say yes to too many things to kind of find out what your limitations are. The next six weeks for me with the, the launch of this book and the tour that I'm going on, it already feels like I may have, uh, you know, sort of tested what that limitation is. Right. And then on the uh, hopefully on the way back, if I'm still alive, I'll, I'll have some, you know, some sense of. Uh, Okay, maybe next time, you know, here's what you learn. And, and so you, I'm, I'm kind of always thinking about it like that. Well, we really appreciate you saying yes to us. So um, we, don't, we don't need to know what you said no to to chisel out <laughs> the, time, the time that you, you've provided us and provided our audience who will find a, um, this podcast full of knowledge nuggets. Where can we direct people, direct traffic to pick up the new book or any other channels that we want to, your course on anger perhaps, to um, send yeah. people to? Well, well, thank you. And look, it was not, there was no hesitation about doing this one. And, and that's, that's something that I think it's like, would I do this for free? Right. Would I do this if there was no ROI? Would I do this because I would get something out of it? Right. So, so that's something I think about when I do speaking. It's sure. It's like, sure. Obviously you want to get paid and you want to make sure you're getting paid market rate and blah, blah, blah. But I go like, you know, am I going to learn something from this experience? In which case it's probably a good idea. If it's like, Look, I wouldn't do this if, if I if I didn't know that I that someone had offered me this, I wouldn't miss it. You know, that's a sign. So talking to you guys is awesome and I really appreciate it. You you having me. So so don't don't think about that at all. But if people want, are, are interested in, in the books or me, you can check out the new book, Stillness is the key, which is by the time this comes out available everywhere. And if you're interested in sort of applying sort of stoicism and philosophy towards sport or whatever you're doing, I, I would say the best place to start is is the email we do for Daily Stoic, which is dailystoic.com slash email. And the course you mentioned, if someone is a club thrower and finding that <laughs> uh, their anger on the, on the golf course is causing problems, you can go to, to dailystoic.com slash anger, and that's the course. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. Really appreciate it. And uh, of course. I'll look to catching up uh, sometime soon. Yeah, thank you. And and look, I'm in uh, I'm in Austin. I, you guys are in Dallas a lot, right? So let's. Uh, it seems Texas is so big that it's actually like super far away. But uh, well, let's link up in person one of these days. Indeed, we'll come down and uh, we'll visit you in Austin. I would love that. Uh, or I'll hit you up next time I'm in Dallas. Cool. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for everything. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.